welcome to episode two of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Gosselin, editor of the Society's members magazine, Unfiltered. In our first edition, we heard from Pip Hills, the founder of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, when he returned to the vaults for a special tasting of our first ever bottling, the legendary cask number 1.1. There were so many great stories from that evening that we decided to do a second edition to allow you to hear them all. So without further ado, I'll hand back over to Pip with his Tales from the Vaults. I threatened to tell you the story about my uncle Walter and the Glenlivet, if you don't mind. Um, when I was a wee lad, my favourite uncle was my uncle Walter. He was a big, broad, very good-looking man. <coughs> and he was a miner in Bowness, where my mother's family came from. And he was the collieries in Bowness in the 1930s ran under the River Forth and they were working 18 inch seams under the Forth and the water was pouring in from the river above and it was absolutely hellish and Walter said that he reckoned that, li that life could hold he was 16 and he reckoned that no matter what happened to him in life, it could not be worse than this. So he looked around, and these were the hungry 30s, when there were no jobs to be had. So he joined the army. He joined the Royal Artillery. And he said, having joined the army, he set out to be the best soldier he could make himself. And he, was, he wasn't just big and strong and good-looking. He was also highly intelligent. And... He joined the Gunners and, as a private and they obviously saw his quality because at some point some, a recruiting party came along for the Royal Horse Artillery. Now the Royal Horse Artillery was one of these really swanky army regiments. When a king, when a king is buried You'll see the guys on the horses, and those are the horse gunners. And they're a very old and respectable regiment, and they were, their business was to take, to use their horses. They, I mean, their main business wasn't dressing up in fancy gear and, and going on parades. Their main business was hauling guns into places where otherwise guns could not be hauled. And Uncle Walter became, he became a sergeant and then he became the regimental sergeant major and eventually the, come the Second World War they got him to take a commission and he ended up as a major and the adjutant of the regiment and he was a lovely man and I thought he was great and he told me, I can remember as a wee lad going to a fairground with my uncle Walter and you know there, there was a shooting range at the fairground as there always were at fairgrounds and you had got four darts of different colours and you had to fire them at a target and nobody ever hit the targets because the guns all, all shot wonky and the darts were all rubbish and everyone would lean 
on the, on the counter and wouldn't miss. And I remember Uncle Walter paying his sixpence and getting the four darts. And I thought, this is the business. I, I must have been about 10. And Uncle Walter didn't lean on the counter. He simply raised the air gun to his shoulder and fired four darts. And each one missed the bull by quite a long way. <laughs> and I was terribly disappointed. I thought, this is my gunner, uncle. And he's, he's missed. And he gave the chap another sixpence. And the chap was going to give him another set of darts. But he said, no, give me the set of darts I had before. And he gave him the set of darts. And he laid the darts out in a row and proceeded to hit a bull every time because he had worked out how the gun would shoot how the darts would fly and he did that two or three times until the showman said go away <laughs> <laughs> well uncle the horse gunners were part of the British Empire in the 30s and they were sent to the northwest frontier where, to fight the Patans and I mean, it's the same mob that are being fought now. I mean, these guys never stop fighting. <coughs> They're now called the Taliban or something. But I do suspect that militant Islam is just an excuse for shooting people, because that's what they've always done. And um, Uncle, what, what, they did, what, what they did was they took the regiment, which was entirely horse-drawn, with a few mules and the like, they would go on circuit through the hills, literally showing the flag. And they said nobody would come to fight them. But by night time, you had to be dug in because the snipers would then come out on the hills and anything that moved would be liable to be shot. And they the tribesmen were using these long jazils, which were actually very accurate rifles. Although they weren't rifles, they were smooth bore guns. And <coughs> he said one afternoon they were in a long stony valley and the, the, the ground was, was small pebbles. And what they had to do was they pitched their camps, uh, camp and they then had to fill sandbags with these little pebbles and they would build walls of sandbags around their tents and they would make sure that if they moved at all they had to move inside their rampart and he said at that point he said his sergeant came to him and said do you know what night this is and Walter said, I've no idea, because they were about six weeks out from their base. And the sergeant said, this is Hagmanay. And Walter said, good God, he said, I wish we had a drink. And the sergeant said, we have. He said, after lights out, he said, I'll come along. And he said, just getting on towards midnight on Hagmanay. It must have been Hagmanay of about 1937. The sergeant came along. And they lit a lamp very low 
in the tent and the sergeant produced a bottle of Glenlivet and they poured drams of Glenlivet and uh, the time wore on and just as midnight was striking they raised their glasses and drank their Glenlivet when there was the most awful bang on the tent wall <coughs> and they Walton had been in a lot of wars and he said it was more like being hit by a shell than a bullet and he said being men of some resource and not easily dissuaded from their drums they put the light out and continued and finished the bottle of Glenlivet but he said he went out he went out in the morning and something had struck the sandbags and had ripped its way right along a line of sandbags and it was a bullet about six inches long turned out of solid marble which had been made by one of the patans and had been fired from a musket and he carried he said he carried he fought the retreat to Dunkirk and then all through North Africa and up and he said he lost it at Monte Cassino but um, I thought it was a good Glenlivet story. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know what else you'd like to hear from me about. I mean, why you said you brought four, four casts at the beginning of the society. So um, why did you choose Glen Farkless to be number one? Glen Farkless number one, Glenlivet number two, Beaumont number three, and Highland Park. No, no. It was just basically, basically we, we, didn't, we didn't know. You know, we were searching around. We didn't know anybody. Um, we were asking people. And at the time, at the time, the whiskey industry never sold outside the industry. It was a very, very closed industry, very traditional industry. And so we just picked up whatever we could. Yes. You'll have to speak up, I'm pretty deaf. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a similar question. You said that the distillers were willing to sell casks to private people, public people. How would you get them to start uh, selling to you? <coughs> I think a lot of it was down to Anne Dana, who was running things by that time. And Anne was a lady of great charm and she, was, she had a very a very a good Scots lowland Scots voice and she was very beautiful and she just charred the pants off them <laughs> and they sold her whiskey there was a lot to do with it sorry I think it was about 10. Yes, it would be about 10 because we each got about, about a gallon off the quarter cask. Um, they, <coughs> I, had, I, I, I was prepared. I had bought a length of plastic tubing <laughs> and 10 gallon jars. And the guys as you can we we siphoned it off into the jars and 
then we sort of rolled it over and drained the last off and we had a dram so by the time we'd finished we were all pretty well oiled and there was the problem of how they got home but I had figured that out I called a taxi company and these guys went off into the dark each clutching his and none of them got broken I'm pleased to say <laughs> Well, United Distillers were about the first people to realise what was going on. Um, they, it must have been in the late 80s when they introduced their classic malts range. And their, the guy who was in charge of that was a guy called Andy McMillan. And he came in one day and sat down. And I came in. And we, we were talking about his classic malts. And I said, you bugger, you, you pinched that idea from us. And he, he was perfectly bold. He said, yeah, sure, we pinched the idea from, from you. But there's no copyright on good ideas. But United Distillers, for years and years, refused to sell us whiskey. And part of the problem was Turnbull Hutton because Turnbull Hutton was Turnbull was probably the most powerful man in the whiskey industry because Turnbull was in charge of all United Distillers stocks and Turnbull didn't like us at all and he disapproved and said we'd never get any whiskey from them so there was United Distillers sitting on I mean, oceans of fabulous whiskies, which they had no way of selling except putting them into swanky blends. And we had no way of getting at them. And we were prepared to pay them money. I pointed this out to them. But we were just a minnow and they were so enormous. And I figured that the only thing to do here was to go to the top. Now, United, there had been a great scandal at United Distillers with Ernest Sanders and company. Sanders ended up in jail. <coughs> and <coughs> the, the face of United Distillers was tarnished. So they got one of the great and the good to be the chairman of United Distillers. And that was Norman McFarlane, Lord McFarlane, as was. Now, Norman McFarlane was, he was a Glaswegian, and he was a high Tory, and he was a very good man. I mean, I, I always had the highest regard for him. He was, he, was, he was a very successful capitalist who, unlike all the shits and shysters who take their money to Monaco, I refer to recent events, um, <laughs> Norman MacFarlane used his wealth to do good things 
in his home city of Glasgow. And that, to my mind, is what capitalism should be about. And not the sort of Ineos taking their billions to Monaco. And they made, so Lord McFarlane became chairman of United Distillers. And I thought, well, the best thing to do is to, is to talk to McFarlane. Because nobody but Mc, there were only two people more important than Turnbull Hutton. One was God and the other was Norman McFarlane. <laughs> and I thought, well, given my background, I'm not going to have much traction with God. So I might as well go and talk to Norman McFarlane. <laughs> so I, ca I can't remember how I managed it, but somehow I wangled an audience with the great man. And at that time, United Distillers headquarters were in, in Perth, great swanky building in Perth. And um, I decided to go as usual. My usual transport was the Lagonda. And it just happened to be February. And it was traveling in the Lagonda in winter it was a fairly arduous business because its heater was pitiful and it had drafts and you got icy blasts coming up through the floor. And yeah, it was a big, it was a fine classy motor, but had its downside. So <coughs> without giving it any thought, I put on jeans and a big pair of boots and a donkey jacket. And it was only when I got to United Distillers, and here is this, this immense and imposing building. And the Lagonda wouldn't fit into any of the car park spaces. So I just parked it outside the front door. <laughs> <laughs> and I walked in, and there's about an acre of marble floor. And then there's a receptionist. And I could see the receptionist eyeing me up thinking this is some tradesman who's in the wrong place and she was just preparing to give me the bum's rush when I got to the desk and I said, my name's Hills, I've got an appointment to see Lord McFarlane and you could see that this did not go down at all well. But um, the old boy was extremely affable and gave me good coffee and scones. Now, I have always been, had a liking for scones and um, we got on very well and it was really from that obviously word had been passed down to Turnbull from one of the two entities from which Turnbull would take instruction so we got it was a pretty meagre supply but we did get some great whiskies from them sorry How many for, for the syndicate? Yes, yeah. Oh, just a, three altogether. That's, we, we hadn't bought a lot, and that's, that's about it. But it was obvious that you know the quality of the stuff was was just that was off the wall. I mean, I had my 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 marketing technique was to say to people, look, this is the best absolutely the best distilled liquor and all I had to do was to get them to try it 
And the thing that really made the society fly in the early days was we had got some publicity in the Scotsman, which gave us some coverage in Scotland. But I looked around for someone who would write about us in the press. And the person I found was <coughs> Jancis Robinson. Now, Jancis Robinson, sort of one of the, the great wine writers, she, um, she was, I don't know if she's still alive, I mean, a most erudite person. And she wrote, she wrote a piece for the Sunday Times. Now, the Sunday Times was the perfect demographic for us. It was read, by and large, by the middle and upper middle class, which is where we saw most of our market lying at that time. Um, people who could afford to buy whiskey of this sort. So I, I rang up Jancis Robinson one day, and she, she, she had a reputation for being really fierce, and she didn't tolerate fools. And I knew that I only had a, a very short time in which to make a pitch. So I said to her, I, I, I told her very quickly who we were, what we were doing. And I said, I would like to show you some whiskey. Now I said, give me 10 minutes of your time. If I haven't convinced you in 10 minutes of the quality and the exceptional nature of this liquor, you can show me the door. And she said, okay, fair enough. I'll give you 10 minutes. So I put a few bottles in a case and I got a flight to London and I got a taxi to, I think it was Muswell Hill, something like that, where she lived. <coughs> I must say, she was much more affable in the person than she was on the phone. But she said, right, let me see it. So I poured four drums. I'd brought glasses with me poured four drums and said, right, have a quick look at those. I think this is totally exceptional. I think it is better than any whiskey, possibly than any spirit of any kind you have ever tasted. And if you don't agree with me, I'll go away. She said, fair enough. And she had a look at the whiskies and she said, right, okay, tell me about it. And I stayed for several hours and she gave me lunch. <laughs> And then she wrote huge spread in the Sunday Times, and suddenly the whole thing exploded. Um, just all over the place. Hundreds and hundreds of people wanting to become members and wanting to get some of the whiskey. And that, that's, what it made, that's what made it fly. After that, um, that was just the beginning. I made it, I made it my business. Um, I, I've, ne I've never been much good at running the nuts and bolts of a business. So I thought I might as well do what I'm good at and I made it my business to get us press publicity and to have a bit of fun doing it. Mm -hmm. And I did have a lot of fun over many years and um, got us, I mean, press publicity to die for. Um, when we started up in the United States, I thought I'd better do something to see if I can get some coverage in the USA. <coughs> the, the, the wine and spirit correspondent of the Wall Street Journal 
was a guy called Paul Levy. Paul was, he probably still is, an English Oxford educated intellectual. He was, he was a different class from your average wine writer. And he rang me up one day and said, what's all this about? So I told him. And he was very skeptical, but he said, look, I, I write for the Wall Street Journal. I thought if this, is, if this stuff is true, I might do a piece about you. So I said, okay, come and see us. <coughs> um, he came up with a photographer and I had said, look, come and see us at the vaults and then I'll take you around one or two distilleries. And um, he came up and we showed him the place, which was still in a fairly rudimentary form. And I thought I must take this guy for lunch somewhere. Now, I'd done my homework on Paul and I knew that it would have to be something pretty exceptional. So I took him to Cushy's restaurant. Now, I don't know if any of you know Cushy's. Cushy's Indian restaurant was the first Indian restaurant in Scotland. It was established in Lothian Street next to the university medical, medical faculty to serve Punjabi grub to students, Indian medical students. And in Lothian Street, before the university, the vandals knocked it down, there was everything a student could want. There was the Lothian Billiard Hall, the Crown Bar, and Cushy's Restaurant. <laughs> and Mrs. Cushy did the cooking in vast pots, and there were no tablecloths, and the grub was wonderful. When the university knocked it down, they moved down to Drummond Street, and it was exactly the same. And I took Paul and his photographer in, and Paul was, he was a real snob. And you could see that he thought that something had gone far wrong in his life, that he should be going into a smelly dive like this. But when he got the curry, he said that's, that's when he started thinking that maybe we might be right about the whiskey. <laughs> well, it was, it was early in the year. It must have been about April. <coughs> and we got in the Lagonda and we headed up the A9. Now, the Lagonda, as I say, was drafty, but it did have one good thing, and that was a huge blue felt rug on which was sewn the skin of a black bear, which was my, my little children used to sit in the back seat under this huge bear skin and sing songs when I took them to their grandparents. And Paul Levy and his, um, his photographer sat under the bearskin as we headed up the A9. And, just, and there was still lots of snow on the hills, but the road was clear. And just north of Aviemore, I drew very quickly to a halt. And I said to Paul, just a minute. And they said, what's up, what's up? I said, just wait there, I'll be back in a minute. Ran back down the road and came back bearing by the ears 
a mountain hare, <laughs> dead, but still with its white coat, white winter coat. And Paul said, what are you going to do with that? I said, I don't know, but it's just been killed. It's too good to waste. So I chucked <laughs> it in the bush. <coughs> we, we went to a distillery. I think it was Tomatin, something like that. And then we headed down the A96, down Speyside towards Glenfarclas. And there's a bendy bit on the A96. And just out of those bends, I drew to a halt again and came back with a pair of pheasants <laughs> <coughs> that had just been killed by the car before. And Paul said, more roadkill. And I had a moment of inspiration. I said, yes, and I'll tell you what, when we get home, I'll make roadkill stew. So we went to Glen Farclas, and then, as I recall, McCallum, and we stayed overnight somewhere, and then we drove back to Edinburgh. And the next, next day, they came down here for lunch, and I gave them a drum or two, and I said, right, tonight, you come to Scotland Street, and I will make you roadkill stew. So I went to the butcher, and I bought a couple of pounds of belly pork, and I made a roadkill stew with my hair and my pheasants and the belly pork and some herbs. And I made, although I say it myself, very nice parsley dumpling. <laughs> and I fed Paul and his photographer roadkill stew. <laughs> and he did a whole page in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> and he said afterwards, he said, he thought it was all great, but what convinced him was the roadkill stew. <laughs> Any more questions? One more. Okay, well. No, I was just, I was just, I was just saying this to, I think it was David earlier on. Um, it was years before we got around to issuing membership cards. And I have to tell you that I had to deal with a lot of creeps. There were a lot of people who thought it was a big deal to be a director of this company. I don't know what their motivations were. I never could understand them. But there were some people with whom I very much didn't get on. And there were people who wanted to be important people in the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. And of course, I was, I was always a thorn in their side because I was always there and I'd started it. So this naturally detracted from their possibly being the most important person. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of unpleasant jealousness. And I basically, I didn't give a damn. All I was concerned <laughs> was, was doing the thing and having a bit of fun. But we had a managing director called, called Denise Nielsen, who was a really bright and lively lady. And Denise was great, and she, she got all sorts of things started. And she said at one point, I guess it must have been the early 90s, she said, we need membership cards, because people want to know their place. So it was decided that we would issue membership cards. I never paid it any attention. I thought it was a perfectly good idea. And 
at some point Denise said here's your membership card and I said oh thanks Denise and put it in my pocket without, without really looking at it and she had given me membership number one <laughs> because all the creeps had been angling to get <laughs> the first membership and I thought I, I was quite clear you know I thought I thought, thought that's as it should be Sorry? Oh, I've been asked this a hundred times. <laughs> and I've, I've, always, I've always said that my favourite is generally the one that I'm drinking at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, there's no question you can compare things and some are better than others. If that weren't the case, there would be no reason for this organisation. But, um, no, I think, it, I think it's invidious. But anyway, I don't, I don't have that kind of memory. And some people can remember drums they drunk long ago. I, I don't have that kind of memory at all. I, when I was 20, I fell down a mountain and I bashed my head in and I did quite a lot of brain damage. And I had a severely impaired memory for many years after it and I had to kind of reconstruct my memory this is something you can't do and I had to reconstruct a memory but the memory that I reconstructed doesn't quite work in the same way as most folks memories this that's how I think it is um, do, do all the distilleries do something that is worthy of being Yes, I, yes, I'm sure that's the case. I, th I think overall the quality of whisky distillate is very high. If there are distilleries that don't produce good whisky, I don't know of them. But there is one here, the Ochentoschen. Now, <coughs> for years I used to resist buying Ochentoschen because I thought it tasted of soap. But obviously they have improved their act <laughs> over the last 20 years because that's lovely stuff. <coughs> was it easier to get uh, sharing taps back in the early days? Sorry? Was it easier to get sharing taps in the early days? Yes, oh, much easier then because there was far less demand. I mean, they <coughs> the whiskey, the industry was on a downer. Sales were, sa sales were falling. People weren't producing so much. Distilleries were going out of business. And so, yes, it was a lot easier. But the whole supply thing of sherry casks has long, been, has long been fairly artificial because the original, original sherry casks were actually shipping casks. Mm -hmm. they, 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 the sherry was shipped from Jerez to Britain and then bottled here. And at some point, the Spanish government very sensibly said, hey, we're exporting all the added value here. So they prohibited it. And from then on, any, any sherry casts that were made were, in a sense, sort of artificially matured. And I think that's universally the case now. I, when I say artificially, I don't mean falsely in any way. They do it properly. Um, Macallan 
um, asked me once to go and look at their operation and they have they have a complete sherry business in Jerez where they they have a cooperage they bring the the oak from Galicia and they do it really well they don't clear fell the oak forest they send helicopters in to lift trees out <laughs> to preserve the natural forest intact and that's classy stuff and they take it they, they take it down to Jerez and they make it intercast in their cooperage and it's a ferocious place and then they fill it with sherry. And do they sell the sherry? They, they then sell the sherry on, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The I mean, McCallan have been doing it right since the 70s. Um, they, they, they had people in McCallan in the 70s who, who were I think practically unique in the industry in that they, they saw that there had to be a future for really top quality sherry wood maturation. I've, I have always had the highest regard for McCallum, as some of you may gather my opinions of some of the whiskey industry has not been of the highest, but McCallum, never, never a question. And of course, your sherry parties when you were a butler would have kept a lot of sherry in, in demand back in the 80s so there was a lot more access to sherry casks. Yes, I'd like. never, so I'd so never yeah. thought of uh, Thanks to you, Pip, we still had good sherry casks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there are connections. Yeah, I think yeah. we have one more question from Frank. We'll take that. I've got one final question then we'll wrap up after that. Well, well first of all, thank you very much for reminding us that this is all about fun. No, that wasn't that wasn't quite right. You're not far off. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I was I think 19, I had a short career as a medical student. It, I spent I didn't spend a lot of time at classes. I spent most of my time climbing mountains, and it came to an abrupt end. I fell 50 meters, which was the occasion of the brain damage, etc. <coughs> um. But when I was 19, I made the first free ascent of the outside of the Scott Monument. It was a sort of charity stunt. And I had been planning on doing it for quite a long time. <laughs> and for my, for my pains, I got put in prison. <laughs> there I was, an officer of the law marched me up the mound to the high street and I was put in a cell where I was given tea and biscuits. <laughs> and, and there must have been a press photographer around because there was a, that somewhere in 1958 or 1959 about May in the archives there is a photograph of the, on the front page of a newspaper now defunct called the Bulletin. And my granny took a bulletin every day. And she was scandalized. <laughs> there was her. <laughs> there was her grandson. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't in handcuffs or anything. I mean, in those days, students were assumed, assumed to be young gentlemen. I wore a jacket and a tie. <laughs> and I was, but the hand of the law was on my shoulder. And it was much there. <laughs> I, 
I suppose I ought to tell you that um, I have been persuaded to write the book and we had a meeting here today with Hugh Andrew of Berlin Publishers and later this year the book is going to be published and it's being done in conjunction with the society and basically it's some of the stories I've been telling you some of the ones I haven't been telling you <laughs> and there are quite a lot of stories that I'm afraid I can't tell you <laughs> most of them and most of them I have to say involve women and <laughs> those ladies here when you read the book you may remark that there are not a lot of women appear in this book this is not I should add this is not because I'm by nature sexist it's because I've had enough women gunning for me in my life and I would quite like not to have it happen anymore <laughs> um, yes so that's really good I've got one final question for you maybe I think it'd be quite an interesting one for everybody here if you compared the members experience in 1983 to now, how's it changed in terms of what you would have an experience in 1983 to right nowadays with the society? That's a difficult one. Yeah, good. That's I a hard one. one. <laughs> I, I doubt if it's significantly different. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole, the whole object is that we should do the sort of thing we're doing now. I mean, I don't reckon that life gets much better than sitting <laughs> in this room drinking the best liquor on the planet. <coughs> but I should say that I am just hugely pleased by these guys who are running the society now. Because since they took over, the change is striking. It's striking to me anyway. Now, for years and years, I mean, I'd, I'd only ever been back once or twice to the society after I left it. I thought the last thing these people want is a skeleton from the past. But what I saw, I didn't like much. It was a bit dull. And there was a lack of intelligence in it. And I came in here this morning and just prowled about looking at things. And you, I can see it. I can see in lots and lots of small things the evidence of the enthusiasm and the intelligence <coughs> that these guys are bringing to it and I must say I'm delighted I, have never, I haven't felt so good about the society in decades and I think it, I think it will prosper I think it should What a lovely way to wrap up an incredibly special evening at the vaults with the man who started the society all those years ago, the one and the only Pip Hills. I hope you enjoyed the stories and we'll be back with plenty more in the next episode of Whiskey Talk. Remember to let us know what you think by getting in touch by email at unfiltered at smws.com or to find out more about the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society and what we're all about, be sure to visit smws.com. Cheers. Cheers.